You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1955th edition of St. Edmundsbury News Talk for the 16th of November 2023. The editor of this edition is myself, Graham Parley, the producer is Colin Holmes, and your readers are Val Fletcher and myself, Graham Parley. We should also like to mention our processing team, who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. So we will commence with the headlines. Groundbreaking Heat Hub handed £700,000 funding. Northern Lights draw eyes to the skies. Hundreds more properties affected by storm flooding. Plan for 139 village homes moves closer. An innovative energy project on a massive new housing estate has received more than £700,000 in government funding. The investment will help to provide low-carbon heating to homes at Chiltern Woods, a 1,150 house development in Sudbury. It means that the next set of homes to be built will be served by a centralised community heat hub a custom-built facility with large-scale air source heat pumps, a first of its kind in the UK for a low-rise scheme. It will distribute heat to individual homes through a comprehensive network of hot water pipes. The project will also include a thermal store, giving it the ability to feed any excess energy into the national grid. The energy produced by the hub will offer a 68% carbon saving on gas boilers over three years, increasing to over 80% after 2025. Funding has come from the government's Green Heat Network Fund, with the heat hub having gained formal planning approval at the end of last year. John Ward, acting leader of Baber District Council, described the project as an excellent model for how developers can reduce emissions when building new homes. Chiltern Woods is already a hugely significant development for our district, not just because of the much-needed housing, but also the future employment facilities and infrastructure it will provide for Sudbury and Bayburg, he said. Hopefully this paves the way for other developments to use this heating solution in future, helping Bayburg contribute to Suffolk's goal of being carbon neutral by 2030. The housing development is currently approaching its third phase, with developer Taylor Wimpy set to submit a planning application for 149 new homes. This will give councillors the chance to consider certain design criteria such as access, appearance, landscaping, layout and scale. Northern lights draw eyes to the skies. Um, Listeners, I've got two photographs here of the northern lights and the two photographs were taken by a gentleman named Andy Bowes and I mention him in the article. Northern Lights is a phenomenon. The Northern Lights are caused by electrically charged particles that are released by the Sun and travel 150 million kilometres across space to Earth. As the incoming particles collide with atoms and molecules in the Earth's upper atmosphere, they excite them to produce light. Few sights catch the eye quite like the waving beams of colour known as the Northern Lights, which made a rare appearance in the Suffolk night sky this week. Residents across the Sudbury area craned their necks skywards at the weekend and on Monday night to spy a glimpse of Aurora Borealis. The iconic lights are often only visible in high-latitude areas of the world, but the combination of a powerful solar storm and clear autumn skies in the east of England meant many people were treated to the display. The photographs on this page were captured by Andy Bowes, 
who snapped these images in the horizon over Cornard. Mr. Bowes, who was with his 18-year-old son, Matt, revealed that it was the first time he had ever seen the Northern Lights, following numerous unsuccessful attempts to spot them, and he was amazed by the results. I had never seen them before Sunday, he told the Free Press. I've tried and failed numerous times to see them, but this was the first time I'd got any pictures. Although very faint and they faded in and out, we could see them with the naked eye at times. It was absolutely amazing and exhilarating to see them. My son Matt was with me and he was equally as gobsmacked as I was. There are plenty of others who have seen and photographed Aurora in the local area before. This was just the first time I'd had any success myself. It definitely ticked an item off my bucket list. Hundreds more properties affected by storm flooding. An estimated 750 properties in the Suffolk area reported to have been affected now by flooding during Storm Babette and Storm Kieran. The county was battered by heavy rainfall during both storms, which took place on October the 20th and November the 2nd. Houses and properties were flooded while cars were submerged under water after rivers burst their banks. Suffolk County Council has confirmed they have received 750 reports of flooding at homes and businesses across the county, with that number expected to increase. Funding for homeowners hit by flooding is now available to those affected through the government's flood recovery framework. We are committed to ensuring this vital financial support finds its way into the hands of those who need it, said Council Leader Matthew Hicks. I encourage those who have not yet submitted a report via the reporting tool to do so as soon as possible. The Council is working with all of the borough councils in the county to ensure those impacted can begin to access discounts and payments during this month. The government made the announcement in October. Under the financial aid, a grant of £500 for homes and £2,500 per business has been announced to assist with initial recovery costs. Households and businesses that suffered internal flooding between 19th and 25th of October due to Storm Babette may be eligible for 100% discount to council tax business rates for a minimum of three months. Flooded property owners will also be able to apply for up to £5,000 to help make their homes and businesses more resilient to future flooding. Suffolk County Council is working to set the scheme up at the earliest opportunity, but it is not currently available. Anyone yet to report how they have been affected by flooding is urged to report it through the Suffolk County Council's online reporting tool, or if you are unable to submit a report online, call 0345 606 6171, and I'll repeat that number at the end of the programme. A massive project which will see 139 new homes built in Lakenheath has taken a step forward. West Suffolk Council has debated a reserved matters application last week by the developer Persimmon Homes following initial approval in 2018. The development will see the new houses being built in a 5.43 hectare site to the south of the village west of Eriswell Road. A reserved matters application gives councillors a chance to consider items initially excluded from the planning application, including access, appearance, landscaping, layout and scale. Among the house total, 42 are classified as affordable dwellings to be spread out across the site in order to promote integration. The developer has also agreed to invest just over £85,000 in infrastructure outside the scope of the site, including improvements to rights of way, 
junctions, libraries and schools. Throughout the length of the development, including during the initial decision, various concerns were raised regarding impacts to the village, such as connectivity issues, noise, flooding and the urbanisation of the countryside. These issues were raised at the meeting, including a particular worry expressed by Councillor Phil Whittam, who said the loss of trees as a result of the need to minimise the risk of bird strikes to passing aircraft was a crying shame. Councillor Carol Bull added it was akin to taking away with one hand and giving with the other. However, the tree planting schedule provided was deemed suitable by councillors in relation to the project's landscaping needs. Three county councils have joined forces to implore National Grid to make the right choice, not the short-term one. After a recent review into the planned pylon line across East Anglia, Suffolk, Essex and Norfolk County Councils this week published an independent report which they commissioned into the proposed power line reinforcement between Norwich and Tilbury. Covering a total of 183 kilometres, the line is set to pass along a significant stretch of the Suffolk countryside, with sections of underground cabling running through the Dedham Vale area of outstanding natural beauty. National Grid insists that the development is required to enable the transmission of the increased amount of energy generated at coastal wind farms. But, while all three councils accepted that reinforcing the network is necessary to support the transition to net zero, they argued that the need and timing of the current proposal is uncertain and not robust. This position was echoed in the newly published report by Hiron's Smart Energy Network, which challenged the delivery date of 2030, suggesting the need for additional transmission capacity is likely closer to 2035. The review did, however, conclude that an onshore development remained the most economical option for meeting future needs for transmission. Despite this, County Council leaders reiterated their preference for a coordinated offshore network due to their concerns about the impact that the new pylons will have on local communities. Matthew Hicks, leader of Suffolk County Council, said the effects of the pylons and all the associated infrastructure cutting across all three counties cannot be underestimated. The impact on local communities and businesses will be significant, along with consequences for wildlife, our visitor economy and protected landscapes. This will come in the short term through building work, disruption and disturbance of habitats, and most notably in the long term for the future generations who will suffer from construction that they cannot reverse all for a project that could have less impact if it went by sea. To ensure the UK's energy security, our clear preference is for a coordinated offshore-centred approach, delivered at pace to minimise work onshore in Suffolk. Kevin Bentley, leader of Essex County Council, added, We are urging the national bodies involved in this proposal to reconsider their position. We appeal to them to make the right choice, not the easy one, to avoid leaving our county bearing the scars of short-term decision-making. We believe the proposed onshore route will have an adverse impact. We welcome the report and urge National Grid to consider the points it raises and explore a preference for an integrated offshore option. Ah, now council is given a grant to fund leisure pools. Three swimming pools across West Suffolk are to receive funding to help with energy costs and ensure they remain open. West Suffolk Council was awarded £213,500 to help offset increased utility costs at pools in Bury St Edmunds, 
Haverhill and Newmarket, which are owned by the council and run by not-for-profit social enterprise Abbey Croft Leisure. After a successful bid for Sport England Phase 1 swimming pool grants. Due to inflation and soaring fuel utility bills since 2020, Abbeycroft has seen energy costs rise by about £1.5 million per year. Swimming pools are particularly dependent on energy. An operator has to maintain the ambient temperature in the facility and heat the pool water to the right temperature for leisure use. Abbeycroft has taken measures to improve energy efficiency and reduce its consumption. This support follows £300,000 agreed by West Suffolk Council as part of the 2023-2024 budget to support facilities remaining open in West Suffolk. Councillor Ian Ship, Cabinet Member for Leisure, said, Being physically active is fundamental to our health and swimming pools are valued by a huge range of ages and abilities. The unprecedented rises in energy costs plus inflation have put severe pressure on budgets, but this council has made healthy families and communities a priority, and we have been working closely with Abbey Croft Leisure to keep the pools open. Sports Minister Stuart Andrews said, We have heard their concerns and have stepped in to help them make ends meet with £20 million immediate relief and a further £40 million to help improve sustainability of public swimming pools over the long term. Suffolk has one of the lowest burglary rates in England and Wales, new research has revealed. Home Office data issued after a Freedom of Information request by ADT security experts reveals the areas considered the safest and those with the highest rates of burglaries in the UK. It indicated that Suffolk was less likely to experience a burglary compared to most other areas nationwide. For the year ending March I'll start again for the year ending March 2023, that's better, there were 3.7 residential burglaries per 1,000 households in Suffolk. Only the Devon and Cornwall area and Norfolk had lower burglary rates, with 2.3 and 2.2 burglaries per 1,000 households, respectively, while North Yorkshire also recorded 3.7. Burglaries in Suffolk have also decreased by 9.8% since last year. Statistics show that almost one in seven burglaries happened at around midnight, making this the most likely time of day for such incidents to occur. The next most common time to experience a home break-in is around 10pm, which was recorded for 5.5% of all burglaries in England and Wales. In response, ADT experts have published advice on how to deter burglars, including setting up a smart home security system, installing two locks and cameras, and locking away valuables. A £10 million road resurfacing investment covering every corner of Suffolk has been approved. The money, allocated by Suffolk County Council, will target roads in villages and residential areas which have often been left aside and led to a steady decline in public satisfaction. Councillor Paul West, who moved the proposal during Tuesday's Cabinet meeting, said the investment would ensure every corner of Suffolk sees the benefits. He added, These smaller roads are often in estates or off the beaten track in our villages and are in need of some love and attention. Although the investment was welcomed by councillors in the opposing benches, there was some criticism regarding the scope of the proposals. Councillor Keith Wellham pointed out the investment would only serve a proportion of an already deteriorating network. The £10 million, which will be raised through borrowing, is expected to result in an additional recurrent pressure of £688,000 on council budgets. 
British Sugar says a significant number of farmers have already signed up to grow sugar beet for it next year, despite a bitter row. A furious National Farmers Union, NFU, Sugar, which negotiates a price on behalf of growers, appealed to government after the company went directly to growers with a baseline offer of £38 per tonne, while the two sides were still in talks. Its chairman, Michael Sly, expressed outrage at the move and NFU has called on the company to retract the offer. The company, which has factories in East Anglia, including one at Bury St Edmunds, said it had made the offer so farmers could plan for next year. It added it would honour any change to the price which might come out of the talks. It believes it has acted within the framework set up by government for the talks. British Sugar Agriculture Director Dan Green acknowledged his side was still in a live negotiation process. Mr Green said the offer emailed to growers was not aimed at undercutting the process but reflected the need to give farmers some measure of certainty while talks take place. The problem was that, according to the framework, the talks should could continue until next September, he said. This was a hangover from the days of beet quotas, but didn't work for growers and their cropping time frames. Clearly for growers wait, wanting to finalise decisions and decide whether to grow crops next year, it doesn't work for them, he said. However, the company remains fully committed to getting a price agreed with the NFU for the 2024-2025 campaign, or sugar beet harvest, he said. But he acknowledged clearly by what has been written that relations between the two sides have taken a knocking. Hopefully we can get back around the table and we can improve the relationship, he said. The NFU said... When British Sugar retracts its current sugar beet contract offer made to growers outside of the established process, NFU Sugar is ready to resume the negotiation process that the company bypassed last week. But that price setting process cannot function effectively whilst British Sugar is, at the same time, making unilateral offers to beet growers outside of it. Plans to build a new renewable energy facility in a small village six miles from Haverhill will help protect farming jobs, the people behind the proposals have said. A new biogas plant is proposed to be built at Streetley Hall Farm in West Wickham. Another proposal has already been tabled for a biogas plant in neighbouring Withersfield, with a planning application having been submitted. The West Wickham Anero anaerobic digestion plant proposes to use farm waste and crops to create biogas as well as fertilizer. It is hoped the plant will create new jobs and safeguard existing farming jobs as well as helping the farm to diversify its business at a time when farm incomes are decreasing. Planning documents submitted to Cambridgeshire County Council said the developer recognised the new plant would be a significant new development in the countryside. However, it said the extensive landscaping proposed, plus the colours chosen for the exterior of the plant, would reduce visual impact. The plans also said that the benefits of a new renewable energy facility would outweigh any adverse effects of landscape and visual impact. A mixture of agricultural waste such as straw, manure, slurry and poultry litter and energy crops such as maize are proposed to be used in the anaerobic digestion plant to create fertiliser and biogas. The biogas will be separated into biomethane and carbon dioxide. The biomethane would be injected into the gas network and the carbon dioxide used in the food industry. The plans said that as well as providing renewable, sustainable energy, the plant would also help support the farm business. A shepherd sheep 
angel or maybe a star might all be seen in Haverhill on December the 2nd, when the walking nativity returns. As part of the Christmas fun day planned for the town on the Saturday, members of Haverhill and district churches together will be donning their costumes to bring the Christmas story to life. The story begins at the Methodist church at midday when everyone is invited to dress up as their favourite nativity character before being joined by a friendly donkey and walking to the market square. The Reverend Max Drinkwater, priest in charge of St Mary's Haverhill and chair of the churches together, said, This is a great event for all the family. It is a chance to remind ourselves of the very real and relatable world that Jesus was born into, a place where he struggled to find shelter and food, a place where he was rejected by the people he thought would help him, but welcomed by the most unlikely of neighbours. These are things that people today are facing, and Christmas is a chance for us to remember that Jesus brings us light and love so that we can celebrate whatever our own circumstances. The walk-ins in St Mary's Church, where there will be free gifts for children and refreshments. This is the first of many events taking place in churches around the town over the Christmas period. More details are available on the Churches Together website and Facebook page. Now here comes a spooky proposal, and it's from ten years ago. Halloween took an unexpected turn for one woman in 2013 presented with a ring while lost in a maze, surrounded by pumpkins and spooky characters. Beck Dunn, aged 19, had travelled to Beck Row for a scary Halloween experience with her family and her boyfriend, Adam Davis, aged 20. Little did she know that Adam had carefully orchestrated a shocking proposal that saw her presented with a ring nestled inside a pumpkin. Adam said... Halloween is a bit of an anniversary, so I wanted to go for something along those lines. On October the 31st, the pair, leading Beck's family, had made their way to the centre of the maze, battling off the fearsome characters that leapt out at them at every turn. Now that was ten years ago, and here's another little article from 50 years ago, and it's to retire after 60 years behind the counter. After 60 years in the grocery trade, Mr Frederick Emerson, aged 74, of Bury St Edmunds, retired from the business. After his retirement coincided with the decision of Barry's last main service grocers to go partly self-service, Mr Emerson started work for Ridley's, the Abbeygate Street Grocers, when he left the Guildhall Fefman School, aged 14. He spent four years learning all departments of the shop and recalled that his first wages were two and sixpence a week. Two years were spent in the retail side of the business, of which he was later to become manager. His day was a long one, 7am to 7pm, Monday to Thursday. And now we're moving on to uh, some letters. And this one is from Ian Smith via email. Halloween can be traced back to Druids. Another Halloween has passed, but I wonder how many readers know its background. The celebration can be traced back to the Druid Festival of the Dead. The Roman pantheon, built by Emperor Hadrian in AD 100 as a temple to the goddess Cybele and other Roman gods, became the principal place of worship. In 109, Emperor Phocas seized Rome and gave the Pantheon to Pope Boniface IV. Boniface consecrated it to the Virgin Mary and kept using the temple to pray for the dead. Only now it was Christianized, as men added the unscriptural teaching of purgatory. In 834, Gregory IV extended the feast for all the church and became known as All Saints Day, still remembering the dead. Sam Hain, a druid god of the dead, was honoured at Halloween, All Hallows' Eve in Britain, Germany, France and the Celtic countries. Sam Hain 
called together all wicked souls who died within the past year and who were destined to inhabit animals. The Druids believed that souls of the dead came back to their homes to be entertained by those still living. Suitable food and shelter were provided for these spirits, or else they would cast spells, steal infants, destroy crops, kill farm animals, and create terror as they haunted the living. This is the action that trick or treat copies today. The Samhain celebration used nuts, apples, skeletons, witches and black cats. Even today, witchcraft practitioners declare October the 31st as the most favourable time to practice their arts. Graham Day writes from Stowmarket. Over the centuries, tapestries have always provided an enduring legacy of important historical events. As a schoolboy, pictures of the Bayer tapestry helped to illustrate the Norman conquest of England and the death of King Harold. In 1986, while living in Oxfordshire, prior to our imminent return to Suffolk, we travelled around as much as we could, and this included visiting the D-Day Museum in Southsea and seeing the majestic Overlord tapestry. It brought D-Day home for us. Travelling through Hawley, on many occasions, en route for Elmswell, I have often passed by the site of Hawley Castle and wondered the reasons for its demise. The answer came in the Berry Free Press of October the 20th, where, as part of the 850th anniversary of the destruction of the castle in 1173, a tapestry was unveiled, and very good it looks too. An answer at last to one of the eternal questions of my life, and illustrated in graphic detail by the dedicated and skilled knitters and embroiderers of Hawley. Thank you, and very well done. Uh, and my next letter is from John Dell of Shotley. Uh, Covid Inquiry Revelations It was with some fury that I read the reports of the utterly shambolic decision making at the heart of government which was driven by hubris, ego and idiocy in equal measure, as one commentator has put it. And with real justification, this was a government which could not be bothered to follow their own rules. A number, including the current and former Prime Minister, were fined for Partygate, but one of their civil servants reported that, in fact, those rules were not followed at number 10 on any day. Fines should have been imposed on ministers, their advisers and civil servants every single day of the Covid emergency. And what an appalling way to run a country. It's literally unbelievable that this government should have the goal at some point within the next year to call a general election in the expectation that people will vote them back into government. Frankly, not one of them should be allowed in any position of authority or responsibility for the rest of their lives. Experience tells us that they simply cannot be relied upon to hold such a position. Alan Pitt from Bury St Edmunds writes, I agree with Malcolm Searle's comments in his letter published in the Bury Free Press of November the 3rd. He stated that the police and crime commissioner is happy to impose high precepts on the tax-paying public every year. Tim Passmore keeps moaning that he has the smallest police budget in the UK. This is because he lacks the negotiating skills required to obtain a higher operational budget from his paymasters. So he sponges off an already hard-up Suffolk public every year because he sees us as an easy touch. It is only a few pence more a day, is his annual claim, completely lacking the empathy to understand that many Suffolk residents do not have a few pence a day to spare in these financially crippling times. Heat or eat is all too commonplace everywhere. His 2023-2024 stroke police precept increase was 6% the highest of all five West Suffolk precepts we have to pay. It was also, at 4.2%, the highest increase in 2022-2023 of all the precepts we pay. 
PCCs are very well paid with generous expenses and subsistence allowances, so they do not live in the world that the majority of people inhabit. Uh, my next letter is from Clifford Davy, Stowmarket. A spoonful of sugar. Keep taking the tablets is a slogan voiced time and again, mainly by the older brigade. How many and what for are varied? Personally, I take three each day, and family and friends have an assortment of shapes and sizes and number. But how to get them down your throat? Again, on a personal note, I can only manage one at a time, whereas my wife takes several all at once without blinking an eye. The thought of one stuck in the throat makes me shudder. We are warned with children to keep the tablets away and well out of harm's way. Boy, oh boy, did we take care with one of our sons. He would take any tablet without any bother at actually crunching them to get them down. And of course, another boy was terrible to take any, and all sorts of efforts were necessary to get him to take a spoonful of sugar, which did help the medicine go down. Yeah. Ron Hall, he's the RNIB ambassador, and he writes... As always, Santa is expecting to soon receive millions of letters from children around the world with lists of what they'd like to receive in their stockings. To ensure children living with a visual impairment in the UK get a reply from Santa, he's once again teamed up with the Royal National Institute of Blind People, that is RNIB, to make his letters available in accessible formats, including audio and large print. Last year, the elves sent more than 2,700 letters from Santa to children with a vision impairment across the UK, helping them experience the same magic of Christmas as sighted children. If you know a child who has a vision impairment who would love to receive a letter from Santa in Braille, large print or audio, send their Christmas letter to Santa Claus, RNIB, Northminster House, Northminster, Peterborough, PE11YN. Letters can also be requested at www.rnib.org.uk forward slash Santa. Requests need to be sent by Friday, December the 1st. Santa can also receive letters via Santa at rnib.org.uk by Tuesday, December the 19th, for an email response. And my next letter is from Tom Murray, Bury St Edmunds. A victory for common sense. I would like to express my thanks to West Suffolk Councillor David Taylor for taking up the baton against the proposed closure of the bus station waiting room. As an elderly resident, and on behalf of all the young families, I thank you for this. It's a common-sense decision. If it had gone ahead, how long before we lost the express mini-market? It cannot be right that a small, disruptive minority forces such decisions on West Suffolk Council. This could have a negative effect on all of us. The majority who actually use this facility for journeys to our estates and around Suffolk. A small victory for common sense and a silent majority. This letter is headlined Return of David Cameron and it's written <coughs> by Leslie Brain of Halton Halesworth. I can't be the only person who marvels at ex-Prime Minister's performances in writing, on television and in the House. So often, free of the constraints of high office, they blossom and no longer look quite the bumbling fools we once took them for. Seeing them lined up at the Cenotaph, swept away by horror at the present administration and a moment of nostalgia, even for those I loathed, I cried, Bring them back, bring them all back. I never thought it would be a prediction. Freud said there is no such thing as a joke. He hadn't seen politics in 2023. 
And this letter is from Graham Day, Stowmarket. Reprieve for ticket offices. I am pleased that Mark Harper, the Secretary of State for Transport, has ordered train operating companies to withdraw their proposals for closing many railway ticket offices. As a user in recent years of booking offices, not only for tickets, but due to a back operation for arranging assistance with luggage, I found the help of staff invaluable. Unfortunately, the rail industry, in common with the NHS and other major areas, is riven with clueless managers. It is fine to talk about smart technology, but what about those who are unable to use it? The notion that staff on platforms could assist using tickets, as well as dealing with inquiries, directions, shows that the train companies and the strangely named Rail Delivery Group are living in a complete fairyland. The consultation process, initially deliberately short and not extended until there was a public outcry, has led to over 750,000 objections. No doubt the real companies will come back again, but they must engage properly with user representatives. We must be extremely vigilant, particularly since the train companies have used disgraceful Dr. Beechin era tactics to stifle objections and to railroad their proposals through. Forewarned as we were this time, we will be more forearmed in the future. Clifford Davy of Stowmarket writes, My sister boarded a local bus to go home. Along the route, instead of turning off right, the driver kept straight on. The passengers soon corrected him, and obviously he managed to turn round. My sister was the first to alight after the mishap, and the driver apologised for the error. Sister laughed and replied, That's OK. It's the most exciting thing that has happened to me today. British humour indeed. And now we're going to do a feature. And this one is entitled Ferry Launch to Make Secret Nature Reserve More Accessible. A new ferry is set to make a top secret Suffolk nature reserve more accessible has been launched. The 12 metre long landing craft style vessel has been built for heritage conservation charity National Trust's Orford Ness and will provide a step-free access to the former military site, which is now a haven for wildlife. Currently, visitors must take a ferry to visit the site, which can be difficult for people with mobility issues during low tides because of the steep and slippery steps. However, the newly built craft aims to make it easier for wheelchair users, families with buggies and those unable to use the steps to access the Ness for the first time. The 12 metre craft has been built in Portsmouth by boat builder PDL Marine. As well as providing better access for visitors, the new landing craft will also provide greater flexibility for staff and volunteers, bringing large equipment and vehicles onto site accommodating up to 12 passengers per crossing. The site, which was used as a bomb testing facility and in the development of radar. The craft is designed to transport a vehicle and a trailer weighing up to four tonnes. In June, Glenn Pierce, Property Operations Manager at Orford Ness, said that while Orford Ness had been made more accessible, with mobility vehicles and accessible toilet and paths, using the ferry was simply not possible for many visitors. He added, We're really pleased that after many months of planning, the work is now underway on the new specially designed craft that will enable so many more people to visit in the future. A spokesperson for the National Trust said, we're thrilled to have taken delivery of a new vessel this week, which both greatly enhances our operational capabilities and will provide visitors who are unable to transit in and out of a transport boat, Octavia, the opportunity to explore Orford Ness for the first time. Orford Ness is now closed to visitors for the winter, 
and we will spend this time training staff and finalising our plans to ensure we're offering a brilliant experience and a safe crossing and landing. We look forward to launching the new craft at some point in 2024 when Orford Ness has been reopened. And I have another feature and it's written by Terry O'Donoghue and Alan Baxter and it's headed Protecting the Town's Character. Love for our town's heritage, environment and future development has not diminished over the 50 years' existence of the Berry Society. The Society was founded over 50 years ago when great swathes of the historical centre were to be swept away to build a new town centre shopping mall. The Berry Society's efforts ensured that no such mistake was made and that today the town retains its essential character with many of its core buildings along with a vibrant national and independent retail mix. A more recent success story is in respect of the Cornhill Walk redevelopment, where the Berry Society joined forces with the Well Street residents to lodge a strong objection to the original plans in 2017. With the aid of our planning officer and the funding of an eminent planning barrister, John Dagg, the original application was finally refused and more sensible proposals are now being put forward. Another success has been at the recent Marham Park development, where designated communal facility land was under threat. The Berry Society's weight was put behind the voices of Marham Park residents, resulting in the recently approved David Lloyd Leisure Centre. The Society has not always been successful in ensuring that planning changes were in keeping with the town, its heritage and social infrastructure. We were unsuccessful in retaining a magistrate's court, ending hundreds of years of an important link between the townsfolk and the justice system. In the late 1990s, whilst accepting the loss of the cattle market as inevitable, we fought hard to retain the landmark Settling House, also known to many as the Round House, selling buns and ginger beer when the market was active. This wooden building was saved, but sadly had to be moved to the recently renamed National Museum of Food at Stowe Market. Also, in the modern part of the town centre, we have been able to persuade the authorities to include landscaping to improve harsh street scenes. The town and immediate area are both going through further expansion and we continue to listen to our members' concerns and make representations during the planning process. This was very much the case with the important planning application for the proposed new hospital. Our planning officer has also commented on various aspects of the forthcoming Abbots Vale development between Sicklesmere Road and the A14. Our interventions are much respected. Some developers have sought our views before formal submissions have been made to the Council. We would strongly encourage new members to come forward from the more recent residential developments, Morton Hall, Marham Park and others. Residents' voices need to be heard on matters important to them, and where the reality has fallen short of the promises made as these developments mature. We would encourage all readers to visit our website at www.berrysociety.com to see examples of where we have commented on planning issues past and present. The Berry Society works with the Town Council and West Suffolk Council to ensure the best outcomes for all parts of the town. Our town must change with the times to grow and prosper whilst remaining a beautiful place to live, work and visit. Above all, we want to encourage you to have a say in the future of your town. Wherever you live, whether in the town or the surrounding area, the Berry Society has something to offer you. And now we're coming back to some general items. 
Uh, and my item is a tree which is believed to be the oldest in Suffolk at more than 1,000 years old has fallen due to recent storms. Nejin Hall reported one of its most significant oak trees fell during the recent high winds and heavy rain. Last month, Suffolk was affected by both Storm Babette and Storm Kieran, causing floods across the county and claiming the tree as one of its victims. The tree, referred to historically as the Nejing Oak, is said to be a thousand years old. It was such a significant tree to the estate that the early logos from Nejing Hall featured the oak tree prom prominently. The tree will now be used in areas across the estate with sustainability very important to Nejing Hall. The ancient tree will be converted into furniture for their pubs, the Lindsay Rose, the Bilderson Crown and the Brewery Tap. A large part of the tree is being left where it fell to nature, creating a habitat for wildlife. Charlie Buckle, Managing Director of Nedging Hall Estate, said, It is very sad to see the end of such a magnificent tree. It will be a tribute to bring it back to life as characterful furniture for our restaurants. My grandmother, Jill Buckle, was particularly fond of the oak. She would walk around the gardens embracing the beautiful flowers and vegetable gardens, but always had an admiration for this beautiful tree. The estate has now planted another oak tree with the hope that it will live for the next 1,000 years. Guests staying at the Nedging Hall at the time of the tree falling said, We were so sad to see the tree fall, but it was quite an experience. A hospital trust has welcomed its 50th cohort of nurses trained overseas. The four nurses, who are from the Philippines, attended a celebratory tea party along with other colleagues who have joined West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust from overseas. Since 2018, the trust, which runs West Suffolk Hospital in Bury St Edmunds and Newmarket Community Hospital, has welcomed 385 nurses from across the world. The latest will take the Objective Standard Clinical Examination, that is OSCE for short, part of the registration process for nurses and midwives trained outside the UK or EU. Executive Chief Nurse Sue Wilkinson said they took on their first cohort of international nurses on June the 28th, 2018, following interviews in the Philippines, where members of the Trust talked about the organisation and why Suffolk was a great place to live and move forward with a career in nursing. She said, The OSCE exam is not easy and requires hours of classroom study and personal revision. This demonstrates the commitment that our international nurses possess to work with us. Today, our first attempt of pass rate is 76%, which is one of the highest in the region. This result, together with support provided, has resulted in the Trust being given the NHS Pastoral Care Quality Award. The value and quality of care that these colleagues all bring to the Trust is immense, and we're so fortunate that they have chosen West Suffolk Foundation Trust to work in. She added that the Tea Party was not only a recognition of reaching the 50th cohort marker, but also a thank you to all of them for their hard work, dedication and experience. The four nurses in the 50th cohort, named Raquel, Harry, Rack and Leo, are set to take their exams on December the 1st. They have ward placements lined up, two on the acute assessment unit and two on ward G9. Rack said, There is a Facebook page for Philippines UK nurses and the West Suffolk had very good reviews. That's what made me come here. I want to grow as a nurse and develop as a professional and there is opportunity in this hospital. Through OSCE, nurses have joined the Trust from Botswana, India, Philippines, Nigeria, 
Gambia, Zambia and Lebanon, as well as midwives from the Caribbean. And uh, Val's now run out of articles, so it's down to me. So I don't mind Val, it's okay. And my first one is uh, one that I like, and that is um, all about puppies. Guide Dog Appeal. A sight loss charity has launched a new scheme in Suffolk, giving you the chance to have a puppy living with you. Guide Dogs launched a new puppy raising scheme and is asking people across the county to give a home to a guide dog pup for the first year of their life. The role involves supporting puppies for the first 12 to 16 months of their lives before they move out and begin their specialised guide dog training. Faye McAllister, Puppy Development Advisor for Suffolk, said, Being a puppy raiser is for guide dogs is an exciting and rewarding opportunity to raise a guide dog puppy and prepare them for their future role supporting someone with sight loss. With your support, we can help train more life-changing guide dogs for the people in the UK living with sight loss. At least 30 new homes for the puppies are needed as part of the scheme in Suffolk. The cost for all the food, veterinary care and equipment required for each puppy is covered by the charity and volunteers must be 18 and have suitable housing and ability to access online training. My next article is uh, Auction of Historic Corn Exchange Building Proposed. The auction of the derelict corn exchange in Haverhill has been put back until December. The Grade 2 listed building in Withersfield Road, which has stood unused for 20 years, was due to go on auction this last week, with auction house East Anglia with a guide price of 150000 to 200,000. Haverhill Town Council did try to buy the building in 2016 and bring it back to use to benefit the town, but it was unsuccessful. And my next item is a temporary store in in use during revamp. The co-op store in Market Hill Clare is currently closed for a refurbishment. While the store is closed, a temporary pop-up store has been erected at the front of the building. The temporary store will be open between 7am and 10pm and the revamped shop, which has been closed since the end of October, will reopen on the, on the November the 30th. Well, we are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmund's Brain News Talk, so if you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Bury Free Press, the East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and the Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. Uh, as I said earlier in the recording, uh, I would repeat a telephone number for those that may have been affected by flooding. And that telephone number is 0345 606 6171. That's 0345 606 6171. And before we finally say goodbye... I'd like to uh, say a little something that our listeners won't be available, they won't to be aware of, and that is that my good buddy here, Val, this is her last reading, and that's after 20 years. So, um, Val, I'm going to miss you, and I've really enjoyed, uh, especially tonight, it's been a bit eventful tonight, I don't know why, maybe I was nervous. Uh, but also on behalf of the family, of, of all the volunteers of... Uh, uh, news talk uh, to thank you for your, your service and your very enjoyable uh, voice I think uh, on reading all the articles over the time so uh, I think a big round of applause for that well, <laughs> and that is it so from, oh, from Val who couldn't resist interrupting <laughs> at the end there unless you've got a long speech or anything all these about. sound effects I know yeah 
Colin and I Hello. ran around the studio recording as many claps as we could. <laughs> so, as I say, it's, 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 it's a, a cheerful goodbye. <laughs> from, yeah. A cheerful goodbye from me. And thank you, Val. Yeah. And goodbye from Colin and myself, Graham. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St. Edmunds studio.